0: This is the Well
1: Founder Podcast. Welcome to the show, Eric. It's a pleasure having you on today. Uh, Me too, Uh, Zavi. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm excited to talk to you today. I am excited as well. Before we dive in, though, I always like to start. Could you introduce yourself to our guest and tell us about you, how you go into the work you do? Sure.
0: Uh, so my name is Eric Fulmer, I um, am 53 years old, so okay. not necessarily the profile of the the, the theoretical founder, um, mm-hmm. and actually never really intended to start a company, uh, ended up starting one um, we can get into that story in a little bit but um, I'm from the originally from Pennsylvania uh, area and then I've ended up in Georgia some somewhere near Atlanta out in the out in the sticks as they say in the, in the country um, got a little hobby farm with four sheep and some dogs and things uh, that I live on so um, and I have six six kids um, which a lot of people find interesting um, and they call my 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 company is like my seventh child um, it started right around the time my youngest two, the, our twins, were born. Um, so i um, got a lot going on beyond you know, beyond work um, and a uh, wonderful wife of 31 years. And uh, so I'm very, very fortunate in a lot of ways and certainly have been fortunate to be able to do this kind of startup thing um, kind of relatively late in my career. Although there is an interesting statistic that came that gets passed around. I'm not sure how accurate it is that the average age of a successful startup uh, is actually supposedly 45, which was actually the date that I kind of started. That's how old I was when I started this. So um, maybe there's something to that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's so cool, man. You've got such a very interesting background, like the sheep. That is my dream right there. I just want to go to a farm and just have sheep and just be away from the city and everything. That's so cool. My, My auntie lives in Atlanta as well. And she mm-hmm. keeps in uh, Georgia, actually, not not Atlanta, Georgia. I think Atlanta is the is capital. Georgia is yeah. the state, yeah, something like this. So it's yeah.
0: the biggest city. It's the capital. It's, you know, there's so much. It's like a little. Well, it's it's there's Georgia, which is really very rural, and then okay. there's Atlanta, okay. and it's just kind of everything's packed into there. And then you have a few smaller cities, you know, Augusta okay. and Columbus and things
1: that's so cool man uh your there's a previous guest we had he he did he kept bees (laughs) so that was Uh i found that very interesting yeah very cool
0: very (laughs) challenging um so important though bees are like so critical to our entire ecosystem and pollinating plants and things it's wild um i think it's japan that like has almost no bees and their fruit and everything is so expensive because you there it's not being pollinated naturally so yeah it's that's a really great uh niche kind of thing with animals sheep are great because uh, you don't have to mow because they eat all the grass, okay. <laughs> um, and they're they're super you know passive and they just kind of hang out, so they're really kind of chill. Um, my wife really wanted horses, but horses are so much more and you know expensive and in the investment and in and in keeping the sheep. You just you know put them out there in the pasture and they they puts around. <laughs>
1: That's so cool, man. Must be such a cool life away from all the startup madness. Even you just go to your ship. Yeah. I love that.
0: Well, the flip of that is yeah. I don't have a network. It's really interesting yeah. because I'm not I'm not connected into yeah. these like you know these like founder and investment mm-hmm. things. And we can talk a little bit about what we ended up doing, which was kind of unique. But um, yeah, it's it's good and it's bad, like anything, mm-hmm. right? There's trade offs. And I love you know I love being kind of out of the off the beaten path. It does let you maybe think about things. In ways that are non-traditional, mm-hmm. you know, maybe one of the threads of this story is that a lot of the things that we've done are not traditional, mm-hmm. you know, from the stories that you would hear. But I think it speaks to the fact that you don't have to follow the path that everybody else does, and you don't have to do what everyone expects you to do, and you don't have to be a founder at 30 years old saying I'm I'm sad because I didn't make my first you know million dollars yet. Um, that's sort of a a cliche, but there's a lot of ways to get there, you know, and you don't have to be in Silicon Valley, of course, which everyone kind of knows now. Yeah,
1: that's, that's so cool. I I really love it. Could you tell us a little bit more then about the short flow? Mm -hmm. and What you guys do basically? Yeah. So
0: we have a a very classic kind of B2B niche solution. Mm -hmm. That um, is really about in our case, we've gone after a very particular problem, which is creating visual content at scale so Hmm. when we say visual content traditionally that's photography Hmm. but that's changing a lot right you know video is coming into the world and 3d and rendering and you know um generative ai and all that so we look at anything that's that's visual that you create at scale um we call that visual content and we talk about at scale we're talking about in many cases organizations brands and retailers that need to create that content on a sort of day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. so if you think about for example um athleta which is a a athleisure brand that's owned by gap inc um they have a new season almost every few months they'll have a new season with new products and they have to bring those products to market and of course they can't sell those products unless you have visual content to sell them you know images video etc so we help those organizations that have to create that at scale they run typically a studio type of operation again traditionally a photo studio but again more and more it's a kind of multi-content kind of studio Mm. and we help kind of automate that process make it easier more efficient things like that so traditionally that's been done on spreadsheets, like a lot of things. You, know, you could say your biggest competitor in a lot of B2B SaaS businesses is spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of that was done. But it gets really complicated. What's weird about it is if you've never done it, it, it sounds like an idea that's fairly simple. Like if, if you have your hat and you have to merchandise that hat, you should take a picture of the hat. But it turns out there's so much more, like so many things in, in business Um, and in the world, you you scratch the surface Mm. and the complexities start to emerge. So for example, I have to get a physical version of that hat to put it on your head. Like, so where am I, we call it a sample. So where am I gonna get that physical hat from? It's being produced in a factory, let's say in, in China, but our studio is in you know columbus ohio so how do i get it there logistically and then i decide who's going to model that hat what what does that model look like i need to cast you know to kind of what who should be wearing it is it is it a child is it a, a, a woman is it a man what is their, you know how do they how do they represent our brand so there's a lot of aesthetics and things like that right am i going to do a still image of that again or kind of a spin a 3d so you can see the inside of it am i going to do a video of it so what kind of content do we need to create and there's all sorts of things that get involved around like proving that like, you know, do you like it? Do I like it? Who gets to say whether we like it? There's there's a whole bunch of just like really interesting, you know, kind of complexities that come into play um, and and things like schedules and timing. And, you know, we you know there's prioritization. So like a lot of business processes, they have it's like a weird assembly line that that is built to do this work. And we try to kind of make that whole assembly line. It'll work more efficiently for these large brands and retailers.
1: That is so cool and so niche, man. That is very super. Niche. It is. Yeah.
0: And I love that. Like I'm I'm a big believer in find a, a weird niche problem mm. that you can bring a lot of subject matter expertise to. Yeah. And in my case, I had been in the industry, kind of the photo industry for almost 30 years. Mm. I had kind of been experienced in the space. I sort of saw the problem a bit. Got to experience it, and then in my case, I I, I started working for one a, a company that ran multiple studios, and they, as a service, they would outsource producing these images and things hmm. for these big brands. Okay, so they were a studio services company. And they served they had companies like the limited when that was around, which is a retailer Petco uh, Under Armour and others that they did work for. And we had built our own software. I went to work for them. We kind of built our own software to try to solve this problem. So it's a classic like kind of in house built tool. And then you start seeing that it doesn't really scale and work Mm -hmm. as a commercial tool. And I had this idea of like, I'm going to go off and build a commercial tool that actually does this. So a lot of these niche things come out of like experiencing the problem, having subject matter expertise in the space, just being exposed to that. And that's that to me is like a really powerful opportunity in the market um certainly you can go out and build another project management tool and compete with monday.com and trello and workfront or you can build another you know cool spreadsheet tool and compete with airtable and smartsheet and all of that and it's it's all legitimate like you can go do that there's something to be done there but i'm a huge believer in going after a, a much more niche market um as a strategy and i was kind of looking for that that opportunity and it it came up and so eventually we um, we built shop flow kind of as um, a
1: need because nobody else was really doing it. I never heard about. I never knew that was a thing, actually. So that is very, very cool. And the, I'm glad you talked about how uh, a little bit about how the idea came out, your background experience. Because my next question was going to be, how did you validate it? How did you? Was there a moment in time when you were like, yeah, this is a, this actually a product here or this there's something here? Yeah.
0: Well, like so many things in the world, you're rarely the first to, to see a problem. You're rarely the first to have the idea that something could be done. Th- there's a common theme that ideas are not really worth much and, anymore, yeah. be- but execution is everything. Yeah. I would say ideas are super important. They're not worth much, you know, in dollars and in cents, but they're, they're super important in that for me, someone else, again, I went to work for this kind of studio company they they had the need they had actually gone and looked at a commercial tool so let's call this a first mover in the market mm-hmm. they had considered a commercial tool they didn't buy it for a bunch of reasons they didn't think it was right it didn't have the right features so they ended up building their own and i i saw that tool i was i was kind of shown that tool before i went to work for them this is this is my prior company to this one they showed me this kind of tool they were building and they wanted my insight on pricing and things like that because Mm -hmm. i had sold damn digital asset management some other tools so i basically was kind of brought in to consult on this project i saw this in-house tool and i said i i want to be part of this and i begged them to hire me so the first thing was a kind of lightning bolt where i saw something and i said i i connected a bunch of dots and said like This is needed. I've never seen anything like it. Right. I never seen it either. To your point, I didn't know that this existed. Mm -hmm. And when I saw it, it was very like, bam. And I think a couple of things happen there. One is you have to be open and looking for kind of where are these where where are you being exposed to kind of new things that are, you know, that that might inspire you. Because I really do believe ideas have tremendous value as an inspiration. If you don't love that idea and you're really not committed to it, you're not going to make it because it's going to take too long and be too much work and you know, just everything takes longer and it's, it's very painful. So you better kind of love the concept. And in my case, I kind of had some subject matter expertise. I had some history. I saw something that was really cool. And it just sort of all those elements kind of created that weird you know, kind of spark where I was like, I got to do this. So then when we talk about validating on our end, I was able to go work for this other company. I spent three years there. We had a kind of in-house tool we had built and we were deploying it. I was actually helping Mm. deploy it and I got to see all the problems there, right? Mm. So let's say in a lot of cases, you take a dry run with something Mm. um, and you kind of see where the problems are. Then when we started ShopFlow, which wasn't a company at the time I started shop flow as a kind of division of another company, mm-hmm. uh, which is our angel investor. So we can talk about how we funded it, et cetera, maybe in a minute. But when we started ShopFlow, I I did an MVP at mm-hmm. that point that there was only two of us that began this. So we were very, very lean. So we didn't have the ability to build some awesome solutions. So we kind of pieced together an MVP. So very classic sort of lean startup, you know, fall in love with the problem, put, put an MVP together, kind of test and validate it and we did that with some very big brands We with the opportunity to work with uh, for example levi's very early on as an alpha kind of client because they had the problem they didn't have a, a a clear solution and they were looking for kind of that you know so if you find a problem that's interesting enough you know of course the whole validation part is are there interesting clients that are that are interested in this problem that are willing to invest time and energy and we were lucky again remember luck is the thread running through all of this we were very lucky that we you know we had good contacts cuz i was in the industry you know so there was kind of a lot of pieces that come together you know i didn't just wander into like a random industry and say like hmm maybe i can help you here it's not that that's wrong yeah. it's just that i had a lot of pieces and parts because of some experiences that really helped kind of shape our ability to get some kind of starting point a little bit of validation and some traction hmm. because as you know sales and marketing you can have the greatest idea in the world theoretically greatest product Sales and marketing is really how you get there. And for me, I came from sales and marketing and I knew a lot of people and I knew that sales and marketing was important. So there was just a lot of pieces to that. I realized that's kind of a lot of small components, but that's kind of how these things happen, right? It, it just, it falls together in a way that you can't necessarily predict or plan.
1: I really like that though. And I, I love it when um you've got the, you know, coming from that background, like you said, so many questions that in terms of, how you even landed Levi as a as a new startup, and which we will talk about later on because of it. That must have been that must have been really good for you guys to to start off working with a big brand like that. And I can yeah, see how we're this super would, excited. Yeah, exactly, I can see how this will match because they're displaying all these uh, products on their website. So I can see how your software could could come. Interesting. So and you mentioned a bit about funding there. Now you talked about uh, investors. Mm -hmm. what goes through how did you fund this initially did you start off with bootstrapping and then did you graduate or go towards seeking funding so our approach was was sort of novel we're we're kind of in between
0: Ah. a a true bootstrap play and a a typical you know multi-round funding Hmm. animal We're, we're sort of in this weird space in between which again none of this was a factor of someone sitting down and planning it, okay? Yeah. None of this was planned. It came about organically. So to tell you that story, a little bit of a brief version of that story. So when I went to work, when I was at this other company that was trying to do this, to kind of have an in-house solution, right? And I I was struggling because our our in-house solution we had built wasn't really a commercial tool I mm. felt we needed there needed to be a commercial tool the other options that they had chosen not to buy were not great so mm. you know again I saw this opportunity but I was somewhere else I wasn't in a position to go build something and to a great degree um, I was I had fallen in love with the market problem and I knew there weren't good solutions but I didn't have a plan as mm. to what a solution might be mm. so I, I hooked on to one particular need in the market. Which was kind of an integration need. Like any tool that would do this thing would need to be integrated. The tool was called Capture One that it would need to be integrated to. Mm-hmm. Um, because everybody uses, if you ever watch any any behind the scenes of people shooting like a fashion shoot and they're shooting with these cameras and you got lights flashing, right? And the model spinning around, they're usually the camera's tethered physically with a cable to a computer, and a lot of times, again, you're watching the behind the scenes, you can see these images popping up on the computer as they're shooting. That that The tool that almost everyone uses to do that is called Capture One, right? Which is this interesting, weird little tool from a Danish company you've never heard of that is the, the king of tethered, what's tethered, photography, so that someone like an art director can be watching those images come up on a big monitor, even though you're shooting them on the camera. It's happening essentially simultaneously. And I went to... Uh, a company here in Atlanta, Capture Integration was the name of the company. A guy named Dave Gallagher owned that, who I knew, again, from the industry. I had, had contact with, you know, we knew each other. We we're about the same age. We we're in the same city. So you could say that network, that point in my network was really important. I have a poor network in some ways for like investments, but I had a good network of people that were in the same industry. And his company were the experts in that software. Hmm. So I, I I got a lunch with this guy and basically said, hey, somebody needs to integrate to this piece of software and build like a real commercial solution. And, you know, do you know how that might happen or, you know, who might be able to do that? I was just kind of looking for, you know, give me some ideas, you know, and in the back of my mind, I was very interested to see if he might be interested in this opportunity. And in one lunch, he basically said like, this is a great idea. I have the right person on my team that could probably do the technical because I'm not, I don't code, by the way. I'm not technical. I'm, I'm the sales and marketing guy, the product management guy. I literally, again, this is how things happen in the world that you can't really explain. It's very kind of bizarre. But but Dave basically said, I have a guy that could do it. Let's get him involved and let's sort of proof of concept this thing. Wow. And I was like, okay. Um, that was my first like attempt to at have some meeting, right? So, you, I mean, a lot of this again comes down to like, luck good fortune call it whatever you want but so um dave had a guy working for him guy named josh and and josh happened to be among i mean if i was trying to pick the number of uh, the chances of this someone that knew that particular piece of software and how to integrate to it in in a way to do it And, and it wasn't by the way done through apis or sort of your normal it was a sort of hacky you know kind of weird concept of how to do it like this one guy that already worked for him could do it and in, to shorten up the whole story, he basically said, hey, you and Josh, go figure this out and go do it. It started with the two of us. Um, I was hired on. And then that was eight years ago now. And then now there's you know a team of 25 of us. And we wow. ultimately split it off into its own company so we were under dave's company originally so again we from a funding perspective this speaks to the funding side dave was our angel essentially but it wasn't an angel in the sense of around the yeah. way it's usually done yeah. where you go to an angel and say give me two million dollars or something and i'll go build this what we did was he basically was like let me kind of fund this as we go okay. so you know josh and i were kind of on the payroll and he's like all right let's let's put some money in this like mm-hmm. but he invested sit it over time so our Mm -hmm. angel was really kind of like the bank in a way and we didn't come up with a structure and like how is this going to be built we didn't build a company at that point he was was... basically angel funding a a project that was under his own company and again if you think about this flipping this around from the standpoint of companies in the world that could see opportunities out there this a kind of interesting approach is that instead of going out and like buying a company or something because nobody was doing this it was sort of like let's try this let's experiment and he created this experiment that we basically operated under that company for the first seven years of our existence and then when we got big enough and it kind of was separate enough and it needed its own you know kind of its own infrastructure we split it off just actually the first of january this year now we would have done that long before but covid came in to the world and interestingly enough covid for us was not a big accelerator like it was for, you know, Zoom and other people. Yeah. It was actually it was actually a huge negative because our mm-hmm. clients were the biggest retailers and brands in the world, all of whom when COVID hit shut down all their stores, completely contracted, laid off, you know, half their people. Like they went into almost like a like a uh, um a period of like retraction in the market because of the initial impacts of COVID. And it took them a while to recover. So we had actually gotten uh, PPP loans and 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 cut everybody's salary. And like, so for COVID for us was actually like a really tough period to go through. Mm-hmm. And we survived it because we had a kind of, you know, continuing angel mm-hmm. to work with us. And we also did, you know, some smart things like, you know, we we went and got PPP loans to say, like, let's let's keep these people on payrolls. So instead of cutting everybody, we kept people. So it, it, there's a long story behind that. And again, we could probably spend all day on that conversation alone. But I would say that we weren't, you know, exactly typical. Mm-hmm. We were fairly close to bootstrap, but not quite, right? And we haven't taken additional rounds of investment at this point, but we've managed to essentially get to break even, which is very you know very much out of style two years ago um but remember we're in a weird niche it doesn't have a total addressable market of you know billions of dollars so for us to go out and get vc for example the return that they would want on that investment it just doesn't make sense for like the the niche business that we're in it's just not ever going to be a unicorn Mm. and and sadly with vc historically if you're not going to be a unicorn they're just not particularly interested right so you You don't have a lot of options so i think there's a whole bunch of problems with how things have been funded of course we've all seen now you know in the last year with interest rates rising etc all of a sudden all the plans have changed and now everybody cares about profitability for all of a sudden like wow that's that's a novel idea but we were never in a in a position that we couldn't be focused on profitability because of the nature of how we were funded But again, it was kind of a little bit of a hybrid. and I I think it speaks to the, you don't have to follow these very specific, traditional, kind of almost cliche, stereotype ways of going about things. You know, you go about it based on how it works, how it needs to work. You don't necessarily follow somebody else's playbook.
1: I love that. I love that. I mean, you could make a whole movie out of that story, like the whole, (laughs) from Inception to Funding. And it must have been such a, encouraging how do i how do i put this you know it must be has been very encouraging for you for one to get somebody on board that quickly somebody actually believed, believed in it and was willing to you know invest his own money and kept you guys going for that long even you know and oh, yeah super hear, lucky exactly i hear stories of people trying to get funding and they, the other guy was telling me over 400 meetings or something like that and they still didn't yeah. get anything and, yeah oh.
0: yeah it's it's another great example of yeah. what well, now i will say this there's privilege involved in all of this Okay. in that i knew him yeah um because i was connected to him through through industry connections etc i was I had a proximity again. So the weird part about this is I wasn't in Silicon Valley, but I happened to have somebody in my backyard that, you know, so a lot of this comes down to, again, it's luck, it's privilege, it's a bunch of things that that I could get him in a meeting. It was that we knew each other to a degree, right? In the in the industry. So we knew each other and we were kind of looking again in kind of the background for sort of this opportunity. So it wasn't like I I never heard of him before and didn't know him. So understand that a lot of this does come down to call it networking. Again, I'm not networked into the funding side of the house, but I happen to be well networked in my industry in the niche industry that I was in. Mm. And I happened to run across, you know, again, call it one meeting, the right guy. So there was just a lot of, you know, a a lot of weird, you know, coincidence, who
1: knows? It's just, it's good fortune. It is. it's it's really, it's really encouraging because it also shows the uh, potential of the business, you know, to to actually um, last, if if that's the right word to use. And uh, speaking of, you talked initially about working with Levi, was Levi mm-hmm. your first customer, or would you say that was your first customer? They
0: were one of our first um, customers in that kind of alpha beta stage. Okay. Um, there was another one which is World Market that you've seen around, which is like um, it used to be called Cost Plus World Market, but it's okay. like a you know it's so it's like a Pier One Imports kind of. They sell you know baskets and rugs and things like that. Mm. So again, we kind ca- I kind of known some of these people through prior connections, et cetera, we kind of reached out to brands that we were connected to that we kind of knew had the problem. So okay. a lot of this comes down to, again, it it's weird that even though these are very large brands, the, the studio part, the part that creates this visual content, there's a network of people that all kind of know each other that all run these studios that are, they're almost not known. A lot of times they're almost like invisible to the company itself. You know, when Mm. you think about Levi's, you think about sort of going through the front door, Mm. you know, and knocking on the door and saying who this whole like content creation studio production area has its own little weird, you know, mark, you know, network and communication. And because I was connected into that, I could reach out to those people. I kind of knew who they were. So if you think about, you know, subject matter expertise, and, and, and knowing your niche, yeah. like if you just really focus on that, this is why a lot of great ideas come from people that were in that business, you know, and saw it for themselves. It does keep coming back to the go, go after problems that you're familiar with, yeah. you know, go after things that are that are uh, that you understand on some level. Now, it wasn't at that point that I understood everything, but I was super curious. I had enough context to be dangerous and we got enough sort of that early traction to get started. So, it's all those little clawing your way to the next thing and and showing enough showing enough um uh progress and gaining enough interest that our sort of angel kept funding it. So, it's it's sort of like you're balancing so many things at once, you know, to kind of keep it moving.
1: Mm. I love that. I love that. So, uh, how's how's the business doing now? I mean, you have grown to 25 uh members so obviously and you said you break but you're breaking even now which is
0: yeah so (laughs) you know which which is a a pretty you know get a pretty big deal in the software space um and and used to be kind of odd right but it isn't necessarily anymore but you know we what we got through covid and then what happened was a lot of the retailers and brands came back out of covid and i think it accelerated their interest in things like e-commerce if you Mm. think about what covid did right Mm. so it killed the store traffic everybody kind of started shifting to e-commerce. So when you think about like large macroeconomic things, speaking of other things you can't control, etc, that allowed us to then uh, see that that we we survived through that downturn and then things really came back and mm-hmm. uh, kind of everybody came back to the table and said, oh I guess if if we're still going to be alive, this the, the brand and the retailer, you know we need to get serious about having good visual content for online as well as in stores, both. Um, And that kind of seemed to have a renaissance then for this need um, in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we saw. So now we're, you know, we're very happy with where we are. It's still a long sales cycle. We're very enterprise. It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of stakeholders. There's technology on their side involved. So their technology team is a stakeholder, right? You know, they've got to look at budgeting and finance. That it's it's hard to get through that it takes a long time to sell into enterprise but when you're in and you get sort of locked into enterprise you have a long life there right yeah. so you're you're spending two years maybe three years sometimes wow. in these very long sales cycles yeah. if you think about it, it's not uncommon that you go talk to somebody, they say, this is awesome, this is exciting. Mm. And then they say, but you just missed the budget cycle that we just mm-hmm. did. So I'll talk to you in 12 months. I mean, that that's how it works yeah. in enterprise, right? Yeah. So you just have to be able to survive these long sales cycles. Yeah. And it's not, a, it's not a, hey, I'm going to try it. I'm a user. I'm going to try it. I love it. And you're just going to kind of land and expand that way because they're going to run right up against it saying, well, that's not an approved tool and you're not going to be able to use it. Yeah. The the big thing that's happening in enterprise, they're locking down on all of this. Like everybody found a tool out in the world and just started randomly using Easy. it. Right. And sort of landed, expanded. That's what the software as a service companies love is you kind of seed it in as a freemium or something and you yeah. grow it, but in enterprise you, they're, they're all looking at it saying, why do we have 200 tools? We can't do this anymore. This is crazy. And there's no controls and security and compliance on any of this stuff. So they're locking all that down. And you really have to be able to work within their structure and say, we're going to go through the security and compliance part and become an official system of record in a business. That takes a ton of time. Mm. So it just it's a slow roll. And again, you have to kind of align to that's how your market works. Mm. If you fall in love with the market problem, you also have to live with the way that market buys, Mm. how they think about things, how they compare products, right? All that stuff. So interestingly, like everybody loves G2 ratings. It's a great example. Our clients don't buy based on G2. They they just don't like they're, they have to test it themselves. They have Mm. to prove it themselves. So they're not going to buy because you have great G2 rankings and whatever, right? And a lot of that stuff has started to be shown to be a little you know, it's not really as clean and as real as it looks. You know, a lot of that stuff is is fairly, it could be gamed. Let's say so. We have very very concerned clients that are like, I don't care honestly that it works for somebody else. It's mm-hmm. great to know that you know one of your clients is Gap Inc. or one of your clients is Urban Outfitters or whatever. But we need to know for ourselves, and we're different, and we need to know that it's going to work. So they do the trials and the testing and rounds and rounds of demos. Like that's just. That's how they buy. Mm. And you're just not going to come up with some magical way to shortcut that process. It just doesn't work that way. So a lot of this comes down to you just have to know your market and you have to set up and be in some way ready to take the journey Mm. that your market takes. And you're just going to have to wrap yourself around the Mm. way that they operate. And enterprise is enterprise. There's just, you know,
1: you're just you're not going to change that formula. I like that you talk about that because that is very very important. Understanding that how they buy, and that's one uh, theme I've noticed when I interview founders that deal with enterprise. There, this it's a challenge. You know, you have to adapt to theirs. I was talking to one that, like you were saying earlier, the 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 user actually likes it. The head of the person that, you know, one decision maker likes it, but it's now stuck in legal (laughs) so it's legal uh well again think about
0: all the stakeholders here so you have legal for agreements and contracts which can be very difficult to negotiate for a small company because in many cases those contracts are heavily weighted hmm. toward the, the the big company. They have lots of lawyers, they write it completely to their benefit and they put want to put all the risk and liability on the vendor, hmm. which is fine if you're IBM or if you're Salesforce or something. But as a very small company, like to what degree are you going to take liability or risk hmm. to to get into that company? So are we going to pay lawyers to yeah. like negotiate this through for us? The, the contract and legal part is just one piece, right? But if you think about the technology side, typically, our buyer is not somebody from the technology organization. It's somebody from one of these niche areas, a department, you know, a part of the company, a division somewhere that's excited about what you're doing. And they like, oh, this is great. Let's buy this. And then technology has to come in because they own the technology stack so you have it involved they're like who are you guys never heard of you okay um why can't we get this from microsoft you know i mean which you know, it's a valid question like don't we already have sharepoint or something we can use like why can't we use jira i mean th- literally these are the questions that get asked and then like again do you comply with all our security architecture integrations wow. to other tools mm-hmm. like you start going down that rabbit hole and to be blunt nobody from the technology side has an incentive to make this deal work. They really aren't incentivized to do it. They kind of like this tool is gonna be used by some people over there. Like I got a million other things on my plate, including keeping the servers running and like, you know, kind of important things. So you end up having to deal with bandwidth problems and and buy-in for all these different stakeholders. Finance side of the business, again, separate from legal and contract, separate from technology. Think of the finance part of the business. What are we paying for this tool? What are we gonna get out of it? How do you build an ROI? And the ROI is very different for finance who doesn't have this problem every day. They're not doing this every day. So if you think about all of the other players have to come in, think about your sales cycles. Of course, your sales cycles are long because you're basically doing complex stakeholder selling in which everybody has to have a win that is different than everybody else. And you've got to get all yeses because if you get eight yeses and one no, you might be done so it that is i mean that's not new like that's always been the case but what's fascinating for me is like we never necessarily set out to sort of specifically you know approach enterprise but what we recognized is the problem with small medium business mm-hmm. is there's a whole other set of problems which you can sell fast potentially and then they're out of business in two years, right? Or whatever. Or they, or they just, you know, they lose budget and decide I'm gonna, I'm gonna let this go. So they can, they can kind of be more fickle in that they can decide, you know, to change their minds all the time. You know, the power of enterprise is once you get over all that hump, which actually becomes a competitive advantage if you know how to do that and you know how to sell to enterprise and you can get in, they're in for a decade. They're not going anywhere because the process of going and getting another tool is so painful <laughs> that you just went through, you
1: know,
0: they, they're going to make it work. You know, yeah. so they one again, you flip to say like, it's slow and it, it takes a lot of time because they're very careful mm. because if they make the wrong choice, yeah. the downside risk, we chose the wrong tool. It doesn't work, etc., is so large that status quo wins the day in mm. enterprise. But if you become status quo, now you have a very powerful position. So it's just a different terrain than you know, B2C. I know nothing about B2C. You know, good luck. There's lots of people that do that. But boy, I, I would I would really be surprised if someone can be really good at B2C and also really, really good at B2B, yeah. and particularly enterprise, you know, B2B, which really is kind of another level. So I feel like they're all like kind of three different markets: B2C, kind of small, medium business, mm-hmm. and then enterprise. Are, are three just entirely different markets. And I don't know how you do well going after more than one of those at a time.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, like for me, Enterprise, being a smaller company, trying to <laughs> negotiate those three, because you're right, it's never one decision maker <laughs> that I'm finding out, there's always no. decision makers. So how do you even Man, target no. your marketing message? Or are you gonna, ta- if, you, if, you, if you're marketing, do you have to market to these three people or do you focus on one? <laughs> This well, and by the way, there is a
0: good answer to that, I okay. think. And there's a there's a great book called The New Strategic Selling that um has been out for years. It's this is old. Like I was trained on this 17, 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. And again, before we got to the era of current SaaS, if you were selling big iron to enterprise, again, hmm. you're selling big servers or you're selling you know computers or whatever to enterprise, it's it's sort of the same animal. The the model of the new strategic selling was you have all these stakeholders. What you need is a champion or a coach is what it's called. So what you actually are there to do first is gain the attention and interest of a coach or evangelist. Now, what is a coach or evangelist? They care about the same problem you do. They have pain related to that problem. They're interested in solving it. So you do start with the, the user so like like a lot of tools, you you gotta get the people that would use it every day to say, like, oh my gosh, this would be a lot better. The problem is to your point, you have to then develop someone that is going to champion your solution within the terrain of that organization because you don't know who all those stakeholders are. You don't they don't know you. So how do you get help? To sort of penetrate that organization and say these are the stakeholders and here's who we have to talk to and here's how they think about roi and in legal you're going to have to go through these steps and here's our template of our contract you need someone working for you in the organization and that's not a new idea in selling to enterprise again it's it's a fairly old idea that was developed on in enterprise selling many many years ago the ibms of the world knew this very very well Mm. Um, now until you are that Default standard until you are back, you know, 50 years ago it was IBM, then it was Microsoft for a while, you know, whatever, who is now Salesforce or whatever. until you have that like market dominance, where they just buy you because of the name, and it's the safest choice, you really have to develop these champions and, and kind of coach people that will coach you through it.
1: I like that. That, that that's, that's clever. That's very smart. Because of then, you know, he will help you, he'll tell you, go meet that person, go meet that person, you know, and this is what you need to do. Ah, I like that. They'll so, bring them to the yeah. table, they'll, yeah. they'll
0: draw the stakeholders to the table. Yeah. And they'll tell you how to set up a meeting or a conversation yeah. that you can be successful at. Because yeah. again, they, they want this now. So you have to spread virally your, you know, your your excitement for your own solution to other people that can champion it for you because you just can't win. You can't go in there and close the 15 people that you need <laughs> independently, figure out yeah. who they are. Like you just, there's yeah. just too much lift yeah. there. Again, as a small organization to do that, yeah. when you're founder selling, which I've been founder selling for eight years, yeah. I'm basically the one doing the demos. I'm, I don't have the bandwidth, right, yeah. to go do that. So, you know, we've been working with one business development person and me, right? Yeah. And when you're that small, you just, just can't handle that lift so you're going to need help and so you do market to the people that will get the benefit it's not it it's not legal right it's not finance but they will have to come along to the party and then as you stage out the deal they come to the table and then you
1: have to know how to speak their language and you know and and win them over that is very very helpful because i was speaking to a founder that i was trying to figure out exactly what he just said he the, the guy that was telling me about the legal he he didn't know how to focus his messaging, you know, because it's he, only in this. And, but that is very, very helpful when you say that because of yes, at least now you know who, who, who you want to start with, you know, focus on like he said, the user first, you know, channel your marketing message, at least convince him that yes, this is a solution for him. And then you could work with him to get the yeses from from every every all the stakeholders we think of it as a land and expand sort of
0: idea you have to land somewhere and where you land is someone that has a real interest and again you basically convince them you Mm. have a great solution and they go help you sell it but i think think about marketing which is a huge problem for tiny companies startups Mm. of any kind any kind of small venture you have to be so targeted so precise in your marketing so if you are marketing to technology buyers which by the way that's where kind of g2 and those places tend to go is that Mm. you know some buyer some buyer you know procurement person or something okay is looking around and saying well this is rated well i'll buy it well that's like a commodity like if you buy commodities you know what's the best toilet paper you can you can make those kind of decisions when you're talking about solutions like this complex things you know that are very niche like you you don't you don't want you don't target procurement mm. procurement gets pulled in because somebody else has championed and said we've created an ROI finance says we can do it right we're we're working our way through legal we're working our way through the technology part and then procurement just kind of comes along for the ride and negotiates price mm. like they're not making that decision but they're drawn in
1: you know because they have a role that is so cool man so cool. it must be i guess if you're not if you're not passionate or if you know if you're not passionate about selling and stuff like that this could be a real challenge oh, don't 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 go after any of this stuff especially
0: enterprise yeah unless you are just absolutely you know in love with what you're, what you're in love with is solving problems. Like mm. if you look at my career, I was in sales and marketing. Um, but what I found was I wasn't a commission-driven, you know, bring down the big sale, close it and go get a steak dinner kind mm. of salesperson. That just wasn't what motivated me. What always motivated me was if, if we can solve this problem, like this, these people will be happier. Like this is really a cool thing. We can connect their problem with our solution. And I realized I had a product management type of mindset, mm. even though I was out with a sales badge on, mm. I was thinking like a product manager. And ultimately that was my sweet spot. So mm. again, I don't come into this and and I didn't build a company based on my financial savvy, mm. right? My, my connections again um, in the financial world. Um, I didn't build it as a financial exercise right Mm. i didn't come and do it to say like i can get 10x you know if i invest this much like none of that was for me it was it was a problem solving exercise and you have to love that problem solving exercise Mm. and it's sort of never done by the way when you think about enterprise you get in and once you get in you pass all the things we talked about now it really begins which is discovery which is really figuring out what's going on in that place okay And then they start saying, yes, I I love your solution, that's why I bought it, but it doesn't do these other five things that we need. We're we're already past that they sort of bought it. Now they're trying to pressure you to turn it into the custom thing that they (laughs) think that they want. And then you have to kind of play that game of like, is that really a feature I want to build? But over time you iterate even within that institution because they can't move, think about status quo, they can't move very far at once. You cannot jump users from where they are right now to some magical future state in like one step. What yeah. you actually have to do is they're like, I love my spreadsheet. And you go, all right, well, how about if I build you a view in my tool that has the same columns as that spreadsheet, okay? And I kind of lift it over. And then now we start there, okay? Now are you comfortable enough that you're like, oh, I can I can let my spreadsheet go. Like you have to take them one okay. step at a time. So you're actually iterating forever, In these organizations so you also need a business model again if you're selling to enterprise there is no out of the box package you sell it and you walk away it it just doesn't exist right they're changing around you remember they're like other systems we got to integrate to this system a because we're sunsetting system a and bring on system b and over the next year you're going to have to migrate your data integrations like it's just never done so enterprise particularly you are partnering over the next decade, Hmm. to solve a problem on a much bigger level, even though, you know, again, my client name might be big, Hmm. but I'm only serving 50 people in that organization. But you have to think about it from if that business function, which is something we do is tied to everything else, we can't sell a product, if we don't have a picture of it, like it's tied to other things, it's important. Now you're going to spend years iterating that solution over time and they are not going to be happy day one Mm. for a variety of reasons and you're going to have to get wins at every user now all the way through so you really got to be in for the long haul you really got to love the work that you're doing you have to be super passionate about it and you hear this all the time but like it it's tied to the fact that it's just too hard there's so much easier things to do (laughs) (laughs) so if you don't love it find something easier my god there's so much easier stuff to do in the world than this it's just it's hard like you hear this all the time it's hard it's hard it's hard it is hard but it's the old you love the work if you're passionate about it you know the difficulties are fun to overcome and you and you like the struggle if you hate what you do then all of that stuff is just stress and you know it's terrible and i don't like it so yeah you gotta love
1: it could agree more. And I, I'm gonna ask you for one tip, yeah, for because he 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 told me, cause say somebody's stuck at the process, like he's stuck in legal. If you could think of one tip to help speed up the yeah. process, I guess if we could talk yeah. about that. But before we do that, yeah, could yeah. you walk us through how your software w- works? Basically, give us like an overview. Say, yeah, I mean, you know.
0: the best way to think about our software is it's it's like a project management tool. It, it has similarities to mm-hmm. a Monday or a Trello or a Workfront or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's so tuned and specialized for the, the weird work that is being done. Right. Okay. So we have, you know, we have tasks kind of things, but they're very tuned to the specific things that we do. Mm-hmm. You, you know, statuses of things, you check things off, you like hand things off to each other, but it's such a complex workflow process. Think of it like a strange assembly line that mm-hmm. we're on and each user Is at a different station on the assembly line doing work and they're passing from each other you know you got to get yours done and then it comes down the assembly line to me right it's very very similar to that so you have to build this kind of multi-step workflow process and people have to be able to like flip it over this work gets dumped to the next person then their inputs are that then they do something here and then they pass it on so it's very assembly line driven like that but because it's creative And everybody has an opinion and it's all about aesthetics and I don't know I like or I don't like the angle of that hat. It's not locked down like assembly line work. It has all these variables and all of these like uh, um, all of this work that is not you know. Um, it's it's what we call qualitative, not quantitative. Mm. It's it's not necessarily like numbers and things like that. It's decisions, mm. and it's and it's opinion and subjective is probably mm. the best way to think of it, right? So there's all these things you have to put in these steps where like Bob can say no at this stage and reject it and then it goes back upstream. So you have to build these kind of workflows. It's a workflow and automation and all that, but it's also hooked in and tied in to tools like Capture One that we talked about before, tools like Adobe Photoshop. So when when the retouching comes in at the end, that retoucher has to have all this information to be able to you know pretty up that image and mark it up the way that they want and adjust it. People have to have been able to give them guidelines. So there's all this stuff. And then here's where it gets really crazy is that every brand we work with is different in their process. Yeah, process. So the tool has to be adjusted <laughs> oh. and adapted to each different brand, okay? Huh. Because it is it is the brand rules that determine things, right? Mm-hmm. So when you think about, you know, again, in the GAP organization, you have Old Navy and you have Athleta. Okay, these are entirely different businesses. Okay. Old Navy and Athleta are not really alike in any way. They're owned by the same company. They're very, very different. Athleta and Old Navy operate very, very differently in very, very specific ways. So even if they both buy your tool, you then have to configure it differently um, for it. So it's just it's a highly weird assembly line, kind of almost manufacturing style process. But it's full of creative people making subjective decisions all day and variables you can't control. I wanted to shoot that hat, but that hat hasn't shown up yet. But I do have a blue version of that hat. I could shoot the blue one on the model and then retouch it to black in wow. post, but that's a kind of variable or exception I have to work into the workflow. It's it's full of that stuff. Hmm. It's wild.
1: Wow. I could see, man, you paint such a good picture. I I I, I get it's so clear now in terms of it. Uh, how valuable this thing could be for them because of, like you were saying, they probably were using spreadsheets to manage all this. And then your your tool comes in, and it helps, you know, like you said, it helps when it's flexible, you know, because it's once, uh, it's not like a a Trello that will work for every small business, you know, there's not many um, adaptations you could do with Trello, but yours, you know, Gap could use that uh, Old Navy could use it to do this specific thing to adapt it to their workflow and some other department wow The key is workflow and the key is
0: creative people who are very visual they're very subjective right they're not going to just say like oh i'm gonna adapt to the tool the tool has to adapt to them and their process is different and the reason Mm. those brands are different is they're intrinsically different kinds Mm. of businesses they have different aesthetics they have different seasonal campaigns and things like that it gets really wild Um, and by the way the one thing we also do is we inject what's called metadata into these assets when they're created so one of the biggest value propositions of what we do is that i take a picture of you with that hat on what you want to know in the image when that image goes through into the world and you put it out into the world you want to know what is that hat? What's the SKU number of that hat? What color is the is that hat, right? What are the attributes of it? What season did we launch that in? So we actually take all this metadata um, and tag it into the asset. It used to be sitting in the spreadsheets, but they can't get it from the spreadsheets hooked into all these assets so that when they go and need to use that asset later in their workflow, when, a, when someone needs to create a campaign or a project or whatever, um, they have to go find that asset. Metadata is what's used to go search it later and say I want to find that hat mm-hmm. or I want to find a picture of you as the model I need to look up the model name and find you what are the usage rights of you as a model when we took an image of you we can only use it for two years, then we can't use it anymore, which mm. happens a lot with models with model contracts so again, I'm, I'm just touching on like so many attributes, and we just do a lot of weird tricks that are like very important to this niche market and that really aren't liftable like i couldn't take this tool and be like let's go sell it to dentists or let's go sell it to whoever like it just doesn't work that way and that's the nature of these sort of highly specialized
1: niche solutions that's so cool man it it helps with with something like this would totally work for an enterprise company because then you could charge higher markups and you could be more you know you you could be more um how do I put it? You could work closely with, with the brands, you know, so you, you, your profits, I, I would think, <laughs> will be much. Will be, you, you, you
0: With enterprise, a lot of the cost is yeah. to build in the difficulties of working with them. In other words, yeah. the pricing, when you think about enterprise software, it's not really price cost up, right? It's kind of market, it's how the market will bear, right? It's sort of like, you know, what what is, so when you think about, like, a lot of people do wonder, why are these, Enterprise software tools so expensive. expensive. Yeah. The 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 hidden costs in it are it took you two years to get in there and sell it and you had to put all that effort in. I mean, that's just one example. But once you're in security, compliance, okay, again, changes, 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 changes forever. So are you gonna charge them every time you change something or are you gonna absorb that cost? Okay. We have a lot of hours. We have a whole professional services, so client success team that is actually by the hour is chargeable oh, helping our clients solve problems because they can't solve all the problems themselves because of the niche nature of like these weird tools. They don't have the bandwidth, the resources, the expertise. So in our case, and I think this is an important thing to touch on is as, as we kind of close this out is like, there's the software tool that's highly configurable in our case. And then there's the expertise to know how to do it and the work to do it. And we actually sell both the services and the tool. I see. So in some ways you could say we're a bunch of experts that didn't have a tool set that was out there that we could utilize because there wasn't this configurable tool set that was needed. We had to build the tool set to apply the expertise that we had. And now we actually get paid for both. And again, you know, the, the pricing issue comes down to what they're really looking for, honestly, is labor savings is really where most of this gets rolled into, right? Um, or some other like huge value proposition so you have to be able to figure out what is that roi um and yes you know enterprise tend to be willing to pay more but they're they really do get it out of you i mean they, <laughs> they take it out of you yeah. because they're just high maintenance and that's the nature of who they are and they're not going to change
1: yeah no wonder you never see a uh, pricing on enterprise you know when you see their pricing table you never see the, you never yes. see the pricing. and honestly it's because
0: <laughs> what the enterprise will do yeah. is come to you and say we're not Here's the weird part. They're not picking the tool. They're not choosing the tool so much as they're choosing the vendor. So what enterprises do is they pick the vendor that they think has an offering close enough. And this is if they're not going to build it themselves. They're really playing a build-buy game, by the way. Do we we build it or do we buy it? it. If we're going to buy it, it isn't perfect. It's not exactly what we want. But we're picking a vendor that we feel comfortable working with over years – to get to where we're going okay so it isn't so much that it's like this feature or that feature i mean it matters okay but what they're really looking for is a partnership over time that's what they actually need okay so when you think about it they're doing like a vetting of you as a vendor and what they ultimately want to know is can you solve problems for us in this weird niche because it is such a weird thing that we can't just use SharePoint for it. And we can't just use spreadsheets. And we can't just use Trello. I yeah. mean, we have all those tools, but they're not going to do the job. So there's this weird thing. Can you be our partner on this journey mm. to take us you know, into this new place, this better place? Um, and that's all iterative over time. That's how we think about it. Mm. It's not a one-time sale the way a lot of B2C, that kind of, or even small business is as well. Um, and it's just, that's the nature of that beast.
1: Hmm. But you, you put it in such a, you know, you paint such a good picture with, 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 the whole thing, like making it simple to understand, even though it's not, but it, it, when you look at it that way, it makes so much sense. You know, it's like, fine, we're not, we're not gonna build this by ourselves, but we want somebody to help us, you know, uh, uh, if we want like a change here, we want a vendor that could help us, uh, make that change or you know work with us basically so yeah that makes a lot of sense
0: it's a partnership and and to some degree the costs are there's a lot of of opportunity cost on our side Mm. that if we choose to partner with that Mm. big brand we know that it's going to draw a lot of resources Mm. so you have all these kind of hidden resources in working with them that you can't necessarily charge for discreetly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the price of the software is also kind of the opportunity cost that I can't bring on a hundred new clients a year. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. really work that way in enterprise. Right. So I'm going to pick five clients in a way. So they're picking us and we're picking them to say like, this is a good investment of our time and energy because five years from now, they're going to have a great story. So it's, it's such, such a longer term play so much more effort, um, you just got to love what you're doing and you really have to bet well on clients. You know, I mean, you've got to pick, you've got to pick carefully. You can't just take whoever walks in the door. You don't shotgun the market with marketing. And then whoever shows up and buys it, you take, it doesn't really work well that way. You're not going to be successful that way.
1: Eric, you've been wonderful, man. You've given us like a, a mini masterclass into sales actually. <laughs> Today, uh, so- <laughs> the reason I have
0: almost no hair and it's really gray, it used to be blonde is, you know, I've, I've, I've spent 30 years before I got here yeah. doing a lot of this work in sales and marketing yeah. and seeing these problems. So I hope that it's valuable. I, I'm learning every day. Nobody yeah. knows all this stuff, obviously, but you, you learn as you go. I, I will say the terrain of kind of navigating these beasts is something that I, I do feel like I've, I've spent the time and invested the time in, and, and hopefully it can be helpful to someone else.
1: It definitely has. It definitely even to me, even though I don't sell to enterprise, but it, it definitely, it definitely helps. Yeah. And then to, to wrap this up, yeah, going back to our conversation regarding speeding things up, say, yeah. uh, specifically to that guy, say, but let's say a department was holding up things. Yeah. What are some ways or some tips that could help speed up the process? So the classic problem in enterprise uh, or
0: any large organization you're selling to is the status quo is fine yeah. from their perspective meaning that they they easily can go back to doing whatever they were doing you can argue that we have something way better right yeah, yeah. but they're like it works i don't know we do it every day the problem is creating a sense of urgency mm. because without a sense of urgency it'll get caught up in all these places right it'll just it. the default is that things don't move like that's the default position if you actually think about the way, like the U.S. Senate was designed versus the U.S. House of Representatives, which is like the House of Lords, House of Commons in the U.K., is the is the House of uh, or the um, the House of Representatives creates all these great bills and gets all excited and makes bills, and the Senate is where they go to die, because it's structured that way, right? It's built that way. So when you think about enterprise, things are built to not change. So if you're talking about things getting stuck anywhere, how do you create a sense of urgency? Is the question. And and the way you have to create a sense of urgency, it again entirely depends on. But you're not going to really give legal a sense of urgency in their own sense, right? Again, the lawyers that they're paying still get paid by the hour. It's, they really don't have a reason. What you have to do is is go back to your coach, you go back to your your um, your evangelist, your champion, yeah. and say, what is the cost of not getting this done? You know, what is what is the problem that we're solving? that has value and for example in our clients they're very seasonal so mm-hmm. for, in, for instance most of our clients right now are shooting all their christmas stuff right now so that it can go live on their website in october or whatever for christmas you know to get ready so they're they're a season ahead okay but if we didn't have this solution in place by next season what would be the downsides and costs etc so what you have to do is back into a scenario where what is the cost of doing nothing and you have to create some kind of of downside to that. You have to you have to essentially articulate the downside of that. From their perspective, legal, finance, IT, we're we're fine. The user are like this is insane. We're going crazy. Like we're here till ten o'clock at night. No one else really cares. Tie it to a business need. So the classic for us is we are not getting this is a good example. We're not getting items online fast enough when we have them in inventory. So it's what's called in stock, but not available. I've got it in the warehouse. I've got that hat in the warehouse. I don't have a picture online, so I can't really sell it. What is the cost to your business of not having a timely image so you can sell it? And you have to go tie that to real business cost, And then you have to create urgency around that, right? You have to find the problem that your evangelist is struggling with, but it's not their problem. It's how does that affect the larger business? Then you tie that to the larger business problem and then you can get a higher up because it's really all about working up the chain right Mm -hmm. it's getting somebody at a fairly high level like a cmo ideally like our we roll up to chief marketing officer because you know things like selling products typically is under there get the cmo to say this is going to change our time to market which changes the way we can get product into channels which is the way we can sell it changes revenue you tie to something that's real And then you have to be able to go around. And and again, legal doesn't care about that revenue thing. But if you get somebody who cares about the revenue to go to legal and say, move this, you you have to get other people to, again, for you, push. And the way they're going to push is you're going to create some kind of ROI that actually says it's actually costing you to not make this happen.
1: Hmm.
0: That's the problem historically in enterprise.
1: Hmm that is so helpful that is so helpful you obviously have experience you've probably dealt with this time. A, little, <laughs> a few times it's a couple of times i've done it that is so helpful but oh wow it's so it's so complex selling to these guys No wonder. That, that that clears a lot even for me like trying to understand what's going on like i've, I've always wondered say you wanted to sell to a samsung or to a microsoft mm-hmm. or something like that geez mm-hmm. you know <laughs> that was yep. something you know so wow that's helpful and i, I guess this is where um, maybe st- uh, founders can invest in getting i don't know coaching or something or to help them understand this because a lot of founders that target uh, big companies like that might not understand this initially so maybe yeah, this is, yeah. well the the classic is you go
0: hire mm. a vp of sales or mm-hmm. you know a director of sales or somebody or a okay. cro a chief revenue officer that has done it, you know, that has been there, done that, and done the stuff that I've done, mm-hmm. let's say, for example, and you hire somebody like that, and then they go, this is how it works, and I know all this stuff, or whatever. Right. The problem for a lot of, again, non-funded organizations, we go back to a, a, a bootstrap or an angel type scenario, you just, you can't hire, by the way, those guys are, you know, 300K base and a variable comp that gets them to half a million dollars a year, they're often way better paid. The sales guys that can sell into this market are way better paid than the founders in most cases. Well, I can't necessarily afford to bring somebody of that level of experience and and seniority, right, and cost into my organization. Now, in theory, they could change the world for you because they can get you in and sell, like that's, but you're not always able to do that, right? So, I mean, like a lot of things, you, you bring in somebody with that expertise in theory, but you're not always able to do that at any given point in
1: time. Mm. Eric, this has been a wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful session. I've totally enjoyed this. Thank you so me much. Yeah. If any of our viewers would like to learn more about you, check out Sh- Short Flow, even or recommend ShortFlow to, I don't know, a, a potential champion. What, <laughs> what's the best way for them to do it? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you can reach out to me. My email is com, or just reach out through our website at com. But... I think the other thing I would say is obviously we're just in this weird space, but I'm on Reddit. I'm on other places where like what I'm trying to do is is now as as, as I've gotten to this point is I'm, I'm trying to share this as much as I can. and I'm trying to learn from others. And so I love to connect with people that are other founders and just kind of talk about what your problems are, et cetera. You know, someday I hope to be a guru that can help other people. You know, I, I aspire to that. Um, We all have something to kind of offer and I'm really interested in these these problems of creating new organizations. So I'm happy to to talk to folks if I can be helpful and, and I'll probably learn a lot from them as well.
1: I think you'd be a wonderful sales mentor, or sales coach, or something like that, Enter- enterprise sales consultant, or something. <laughs> I <think> um, you—you <laughs> know—I'm so busy doing my thing right now, I can't. But I'd love to someday
0: have the bandwidth. Remember the six kids, the sheep, the 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 company. Like yeah. I, I got a lot going on, but yes, I hope to at some point get to the point where I might be able to mentor and help others who are trying to build, you know, new companies. Um, and again, particularly in this enterprise space. But uh, we'll see where it all goes. Um, I'm pretty busy right now but i've really been uh happy to, to spend some time with you and have really enjoyed uh, meeting you and talking with you as well
1: likewise likewise eric it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on. of course thanks a lot speak soon